You're listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Piesgit, designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today I'm talking with Stephen Pike. Problems for statisticians to take on. Okay, this was a really, really, really nice interview and I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did. It's based on a presentation that he gave at the PSI Strategy Day in 2019 and that really set a really good tone for the Strategy Day and for the board meeting that happened the day after. And this was also the origin, so to say, of the new vision for PSI. So, if you don't know about Steve Pike, then you will learn about him in just a couple of minutes, because he's actually quite, quite a successful statistician, I can say, and probably most people will agree with that. And so, so listen to his amazing career and um, how he as a statistician got insight into many, many other areas and can now help you to understand what are all the other tasks that you can have an impact on that you may not think about. So, please enjoy the podcast and if you do, please tell your colleagues about it. That would be really, really wonderful because We need more people to benefit from this podcast and we need more people to grow their leadership skills, learn more about statistics, learn more about the environment and be more effective at the work. So, the podcast is produced in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefit of patients. Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, all of them, and much, much more. The reduced rates is just £20 per year, of course, for non-high-income countries and just £95 for high-income countries. Just go to the PSI website at psiweb.org and there you see all the activities and you can also join. Welcome to another episode of the Effective Statistician and today I'm really proud to have a very prominent guest here. We'll basically speak about a presentation Steve gave at the PSI Strategy Day in 2019 And that was very thought-provoking and triggered a lot of discussions and set up the attendees of the strategy day to think more broadly, more future-oriented, and, and how to best set up PSI for the next years. And that was also the basis for the new PSI purpose and then the strategic objectives that we recently also shared more broadly. So I'm really happy to have Steve here on the call. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? Uh, good morning, Alexander. Yeah, very well, thank you. It's a great pleasure to have the chance to talk with you today. Um, I, you reminded me of that um, session I had with the board not so very long ago. Um, nice to be uh, reconnected with PSI after a little period of absence, because obviously, uh, as you discovered, I've been doing some other things for the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we can dive a little bit into that because you had a, as a statistician, a pretty broad career looking into lots of, lots of different uh, things. You, you started in, in academia and then moved into pharma, working in uh, stats and uh, data management, uh, so more kind of the typical things. But then you also went into a couple of other areas and you have overseen much more than just the regular statisticians side. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I've been very fortunate in my career to have managers who were willing to take a chance on me. I trained as a statistician. There was nothing in my training that suggested I could do allowed me to have a go at. But I guess, um, you know, people see things in you and they, they think you can uh, take on new challenges. And that's what I had the chance to do. So, yeah, I went into initially a more sort of broader scientific uh, role where I was uh, overseeing not only statistics, but also some other of the scientific disciplines. So uh, pharmacology, computational biology, genetics, which was a real stretch for me, but incredibly exciting. Epidemiology, which was a little closer to home. So I had this sort of cluster of uh, sort of related, but, but but very distinct scientific disciplines, which I was overseeing. And that was, uh, was a real education. Uh, and of course, what it, what it gave me a huge opportunity to do was get much more exposure into the sort of research and discovery end of the business uh, through some of those groups. And then more recently, and I suppose what I focused on, particularly when I met with the board, uh, clinical operations. So in the last couple of years, what I've spent my time doing is running a, a sort of fairly typical clinical operations group. So clinical trials, phases one to four, data management, project management, clinical, in-country staff, the CRAs, and so on. So again, not obviously closely related to my statistics training, uh, but actually, surprisingly, there were some things that really were helpful for me in terms of what I'd done previously. So yeah, I've had a, a varied and, and I must say really enjoyable career. So, so when you were leading all these different quantitative uh, functions like epidemiology and genetics and so on. What these be now all called data scientists in the new world? Yeah, that's, a, that's a sort of interesting and somewhat provocative question. Are we all data scientists, statisticians included these days? Um, I think what's true, actually, not only of the disciplines, which you would probably self-describe as quantitative sciences, but also probably of the clinical operations side is that data is now has to be seen as integral to the way that we think about doing our job and the way that we can and should draw on data in order to make sensible choices to make the right decisions more often is obviously key i think for statisticians you know the sort of the the, <laughs> the sort of discussion here is about whether this is anything more than just what's in a name. I mean, is there any substantive difference? I think there has been. I, th I think the gap is closing. Uh, and I do think, uh, you know, when I think about my time in, in farm, and you'll know more recently than me, Alexander, but my sense was it took a little bit of time for the statisticians in pharma to catch up to the idea that things have moved on. And that's where the data scientist, I think, brought some challenge to say, actually, these much bigger data sets new ways of tackling problems. The pharma statisticians need to sort of take note. So I don't know if that was quite what was behind your question, but it would be something that I would say in terms of this whole issue of is data science really anything different or new? Yeah, well, and there's no right or wrong. It's just very, very interesting to see all the different uh, perspectives on it. So just recently, you have taken a new challenge within your organization. And maybe you can take a talk a little bit about that role. Yeah, just just actually since the holidays, I, um, I've come back into a role as head of digital data and analytics for the development organization. So again, another evolution in my in my uh, uh, role. And it's somewhat related to what, you know, the previous question you asked me, this sort of notion that today, if pharma has any desire to be successful, it absolutely has to embrace the sort of wave of technological innovation that's coming through the the use of very large data uh, assets, which you don't necessarily have inside your own company walls. You need to license from other data generators, data providers. And then the analytics, the visual tools, and many of these will be very visual, but, but the sort of analytic mm -hmm. tools which go with them, whether that's in the form of ways to monitor, oversee dashboard type tools, or whether it's tools that allow us to measure in ways that we couldn't measure previously. And I know the audience will, will be very familiar with wearables and apps and all the rest of it. So, you know, I think what my boss has seen is if we leave this to individual enthusiasts or even the functional groups, what you end up with is a little bit of a disconnected, non sort of coherent series of investments. And in a world where financial resources are as constrained as any other, I think my role is to help the business make 
the right priority calls and when it makes those calls to ensure that there's a degree of kind of cohesion in the collective investment plan that we bring together. So yeah, I'm, yeah. I must say I'm very excited and here I am what less than two weeks into that role and, and really trying to integrate in my own mind exactly what I need to do to help the business be successful. So, so in your title that you mentioned here, there's this word digital. And depending on the people you talk to, that has very different connotations. So, so for example, when you talk to people, let's say in marketing, digital is all about, let's say, uh, digital interactions with customers like emails and, and things like that, but also storing then all these information centrally and, and then be able to analyze it, visualize it and, and improve on your marketing and, and sales efforts. Is, is digital in the development organization something similar? These words, a bit like the data science label, <laughs> they're, they're sort of used in ways which have different meanings depending on the context. I think for me, it's this idea that, you know, the, the world around us has changed in ways which are, when you're looking back over the last five years, incredibly dramatic in our personal lives, ubiquity of smartphones and all the apps that come through those and the things that they are now allowing us to do, the desktops that we have. And I, you know, in my endeavors to become paper free and truly digital, I was, you know, uh, had a lesson, an advanced lesson in OneNote the other day. And the, the way that allows us to integrate different aspects of the way we work in the office, incredibly valuable. It, when you think about the ways that we interact then beyond the office desk and into the outside world with patients, with healthcare providers, with audiences beyond those, digital in a sense becomes the medium by which we are able to do all of that using different platforms that, that are in their you know, at their root in, in some sense, an integration of capabilities in a way that I don't think we've ever seen historically. For, for most of my time, for all of my time in the industry, digital, if it's meant anything, has been, here's a tool and here's another tool and here's a device, but, but honestly, they're not connected in any way. So, so when I think about yeah. digital, it's that word integration, actually, that comes forward more than any other. And the idea that what I'm doing can be integrated with what other people are doing, that we can share that we can communicate and that all of that can happen in a very facile way. And actually, I think the challenge for us, particularly those of us of a certain age who've grown up with that very sort of fractionated way of working uh, and a very yeah. sort of paper-based way of working is to say that that can no longer be considered an appropriate way to go. We've got to engage, we've got to embrace, and we've got to understand that all of this stuff already exists mm -hmm. and we've got to get out there and use it and figure out good ways to use it. So, so is that very much about having good standards for how we capture and how we store data, having a kind of a governance for, for how we avoid all these isolated initiatives, silos within everything? For example, I'm just thinking about things like resource planning or something like this, yes, where I sometimes see that this is, you know, done differently in every department maybe even every group but basically the challenge is always the same you have some people in your group and uh, you want to plan is that enough for the next year is it too much or how is, how will that look like and and based on the projects that you have anticipated the gaps there well, well you, it's an interesting example you give and but you, you know, there are sort of two things which might be connected uh, Uh, resource planning is always a challenging area, and, and I'm not sure that's wholly solved by digital, to be perfectly honest. For sure, if we are smart about the way we build our tools and dashboards, and if we do it in a way which is where, where, where there is genuinely one source of the truth and everything is integrated and we're all looking at the same data at the same time, whatever our role, wherever we are in the business, and it's sort of real time, then that allows you to do things that historically have been more difficult. And in some degree, we can think about how to have to optimize our investment in resources and, and so on. However, you know, I, I think when it comes to resource planning in particular, you know, one has to accept there's a little bit of art to this as much as there is data and science in the sense that, you know, if I ask you how many statisticians does it take to design, deliver a protocol, <laughs> you'll say to me, well, well, it just sort of depends. You know, it depends. Show me the protocol and I'll, and I'll maybe be able to give you an answer. And it's the it depends piece, which I think is always going to be with us, the complexity of the protocol, the specificity, the newness of the disease area, and so on and so on. So, 
you know, I think what digital can do is help ensure that all that can be known is known and all that can be integrated and, and, and surfaced in front of us can be surfaced. There will always, I'm, in my view, be the need for management judgment uh, and some sense of experience being brought to bear. But yeah, I, I, so, so I think that's the, that's the issue for, for me about resourcing. Um, I think I think you started by asking a question which is slightly <laughs> broader, which now I've forgotten what it was. But I think that that's fine. <laughs> I think we we uh, talked a little bit about what digital means in the, in the clinical development uh, world. Yeah. Well, I remember I remember what you you mentioned standards, and 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 I, I will just say a couple of words about that because I do think that you know it's it's sometimes lost on certain audiences that if you integrate data in a way which is in some sense haphazard, then what you get out is haphazard. And and one has to do one of two things, and I think both are perfectly reasonable to do. Either you need to have really high-quality metadata and really good understanding of where the linkages are between your different data sets and invest time to build that. And for certain uses, that's critical, that's essential. In other contexts, and I'm thinking particularly about electronic medical record use and data sets which are owned by other providers but which we might wish to link, there are some pretty sophisticated um, statistical methods now which allow you in a sort of Bayesian sense, I think, to make good guesses about where those linkages can come and in some sense link things where we don't have perfect information, but where we can say something about the likelihood of error and make some sensible choices about how best to link things. So, uh, you know, I think I think one has to be mindful that, well, it's the old garbage in, garbage out. You need to know when you're putting data into a system, what's its pedigree, what is known, what is not known, and therefore what does one do as a consequence? Yeah, I think it's similar with kind of uh, clinical data in a sense. Yes, so, so if you give all the clinical data that you have um, to a physician to make a treatment decision, um that will not automatically give, okay, that's yes, no, just based on the data. There's always additional art to it to, to, to see the whole patient and, and see other things that you can't measure with the data. And so, so I think that's always the case also when we look into the business data. But, but I think the point that you're making is that at least we should have all the data in front of us that is pretty easy to take to make good data-driven decisions but obviously for nearly all decisions there will be some art to it and not just the science and, and you remind me of sort of one of my my sort of themes when i met with the board which uh, i mean just to say a couple of words about it it's one thing to have data and evidence it's another thing to convince the people who are the decision makers to act on it i mean we see this in our everyday lives all the time and i and i shared some example from a book i'd read uh, over the holidays but but i think this whole notion that if only we had the data then we would act differently we would act more sensibly that we would make better decisions it's not true and i think i think if you know one has to recognize that there is a change element here that there is an influencing element here that in some sense particularly if you know if we're talking to an audience of statisticians you'll know yourself you've got to persuade the organization that what you see and therefore the action that you advise is the way to go and so understanding how to explain what the data is telling you, how to show that audience uh, what it means, and then to ensure that the decisions that flow from it are in some sense the right decisions, optimal or, or whatever. You know, what, let's not overlook that aspect of what we're talking about here. It's, it is about evidence. It is about visualizing and surfacing. It is about integration, but it's about some other things too, human behavior, culture. Yeah, I think it's just not enough to be right that doesn't mean you get to the right conclusion and yeah, to the exactly right decision. <laughs> if, if you think about these different skills that statisticians need to be successful in that regard, we'll talk a little bit later about the different problems that, that are, you know, the bigger problems that statisticians should tackle. But, but let's pause for a minute and think about what are the skills that statisticians really need to improve on to influence the decisions in the right way and also have a have a seat at the table when the decisions are made and not just be, being the you know report provider that is then excluded from all the discussions yeah it's it's a really important question it seems to me and I, and i and i take it as given 
that technically statisticians are up to the job, that they know what they're doing. I mean, I, I'm not even going to talk about that because I, I, I know that there's some very good people doing very nice work and that, you know, if you join the industry as a statistician, you get incredibly strong training and, and so on. So, so I think the technical pieces are given, although, you know, it would be interesting to ask whether and to what extent all of the people listening in today are, are embracing some of the new Bayesian methods. Um, but anyway, let's, let's park that and leave that for others to reflect on. For me then, you know, I've had the real privilege to sit on a number of senior governance boards in my organization. And therefore what I've had routinely, sometimes multiple times a week is the opportunity to hear from project teams, including the statisticians about their projects, about uh, what they're proposing, about the investments that are going to be necessary to deliver it and the choices they're making and why and so on. And some of those have been outstanding uh, and have carried the governance board in a very compelling way. And they've got exactly what they asked for and others less so. And, and I think what it requires is, is probably two things, perhaps. One is the ability to articulate in a way which is understood by a, a sort of non-technical audience. I mean, they're scientific, they're mm. familiar with clinical protocols, they understand clinical development, but they're not statisticians. So the ability to communicate sometimes quite complex concepts, sometimes quite complex statistical analysis of data, to be able to articulate and communicate and explain what that's telling you in ways which are grasped by the audience and the import of that data to the argument that's being made. I think that's incredibly important. And, and, and by the way, there's a sort of, uh, sort of an, an understanding, I hope, that you know, if a statistician goes to a governance board meeting, they're not there just to sit and listen. They're there to speak. So, <laughs> so, so you know, I mean, perhaps I should have begun there. Of course, that they will contribute, not just listen, but they will contribute in a way which is grasped and powerfully understood by the audience. So that that's key, I think. But I think the other piece for me is for them to go in with an absolute understanding of the criticality of the role that they play in the decision-making process. And the idea that things like the probability of success, for example, a, a very sort of simple idea, but incredibly important when we're making investment decisions. If you're being asked as a governance board to spend 100 million pounds uh, on a program, you want to be confident that at the end of it, there's some chance that you understand at the beginning that you will be successful. And there was some chance that you will have data which will allow you to make a clear decision, not end up still struggling to understand what the next step should be. So this whole concept of, all right, well, how does this next investment fit into the overall scheme of things? How does it advance the base of knowledge? And how does it allow us then to be in a position where we can, with greater certainty and greater confidence, decide to progress or not progress in light of the data that's in our hand? In other words, you know, dealing with uncertainty, which is absolutely stock in trade for statisticians, how to help the organization feel comfortable that we are dealing with that uncertainty in the most efficient way. So, you know, there's a sort of, I mean, you could argue that's sort of a technical part of what statisticians are doing, but it's a, a very particularly important piece of what statisticians need to be able to do in a governance board setting when, when investments are being discussed. So, so it's basically first coming into the meeting with a mindset of of being an owner, not just a consultant. Absolutely, and it's coming into the meeting knowing what the audience needs to make a decision, knowing yeah. what are the kind of business environment, what is kind of the the their goals, what are the constraints that people uh, work under, what is you know their most important priorities. And, and then also be able to, to, to listen to that and then be able to then also communicate back in, in a way that it addresses these concerns, these, these priorities, these simple plain language, not a technical language. It's exactly right. And, and I think the, the head of R&D at my company now, um, Hal Barron, puts it really nicely. He talks about smart risk-taking. And he has this sort of concept of being willing to take risks. And, and fundamentally, drug development is all about taking risks. He goes on to point out, and I think it's, it's rather well done, um, that we could choose never to invest 
And that would be the right decision most of the time. But of course, it would cause our businesses <laughs> to fail. We are, you know, and, and we sort of understand this. And yet we often overlook it, that, that we understand that we have to take risks and that we understand that most of those will fail. And that's OK. That's the nature of what we do. But that's why the role of the statistician is so critical, because they are in a position to help us understand the nature of those risks and how those risks are then discharged over time by new pieces of evidence, which we bring through our clinical studies. Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's the more you think about it, the more powerfully important that sort of observation, really simple observation is um, smart risk taking requires really clear uh, understanding of where the risks arise and how they mm. get discharged. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. As we are talking now about, you know, These, these problems. You mentioned a couple of problems that statisticians should, should focus on in, uh, in, the, in the pharma world beyond kind of the, the typical things that, that we mostly focus on, like, like yeah, make, making studies and making maybe also project plans uh, for, for complete compounds and, and how we development, uh, develop uh, compounds or you know, also doing phase beyond or before the clinical development. But I think there's a lot of other things where, where statisticians can have a bigger impact. And, and especially with your background in, in clinical operations, you talked about a couple of these. What are these from your point of view? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'll start with one, which actually my new role is still very much on my mind. Uh, and it's around enrollment of patients into our clinical trials. You know, if you think about how long it takes to conduct a clinical trial, you know, there's the protocol writing phase, there's the initiation phase where we're getting centers set up. Later on, there's the um, treatment phase, and then there's the closeout phase where we're cleaning the data, and then there's the reporting phase and the medical writing. And to some extent, most of that is pretty, you can plan it pretty well. But if you look at the data, what you find is that the phase which is least reliable in terms of its duration is, is the patient enrollment phase. Uh, and in particular, many of our trials, not all of them, um, some of them go very much to plan, but too many of them don't. If we're off plan, it's very rarely because we recruit much faster <laughs> than we expected. It's almost, it's almost always because we recruit much slower than we'd anticipated. And moreover, even when we're recruiting to plan, And this is the sort of digital piece and, and the connection here. You know, I, I was looking at some data quite recently in a disease area. The data that we were projecting for our trial was not terribly different from what we saw in the competitive landscape. So I assume it was reasonably representative. And you're talking about one to two patients per site per year. And of course, for any significantly sized study, that either means hundreds and hundreds of sites or you know, at least a couple of years of, of recruiting patients. And then, of course, you've got the treatment phase after you've got them recruited into the study. So it seems to me there's quite a bottleneck here and a real opportunity to be addressed. And, and then you say, okay, so what's the connection to statisticians? Well, well, of course, the connection, it seems to me, is that if things are going to go off plan, as they often do, how do we know whether we're on plan or off plan? Mm -hmm. you, know, you, I, you may have seen, as I've seen, recruitment curves. Okay, by this day, here's where we'll be. We'll have randomized this many, we'll have screened this many, we'll have this many centers open and so on. And you, you've seen many of them, I'm sure I've seen many of them, but, but too many of them don't have confidence intervals around them. Yep. Now, this is not new. It's not a new idea. And sometimes you do see them presented and there are tools out there which will give you these sort of ranges um, around the plan. And then you add another layer onto that, which is And when should we intervene? When do we conclude that this is off track and therefore we need to do something different? And what represents optimality in some sense, however we define it? Well, when is the optimal moment to intervene? Early, late? Yeah, we'll watch mm -hmm. it and see. It's different for every study. But isn't that exactly the sort of thing that statistical thinking can help us with? And moreover, if, if a lot of the thinking's already been done, and I, and I think there is stuff out there which you can see in the literature and, and which you can see indeed in some tools, why are we still in a situation where too often that's not routinely used? So, you know, I, I do wonder whether without doing anything mind-blowing, cutting-edge, groundbreaking, actually there's some simple things that statisticians could be talking to their org ClinOps organization about to say, you know, maybe we can help. Maybe we can help you with planning uh, enrollment 
and and as you know go back to where i began you know if enrollment was the plan then there's a real benefit to the wider organization because too often mm-hmm. it's not to plan too often and of course if it goes over that's a lot of extra money in monitoring costs and project management costs and so on. So so the sums involved here can be very large. I think that is a general theme that I uh, see very often about uh, data, let's say in the wider uh, organization, that mostly people just report point estimates. It's the mean proportion or the you know mean time or whatsoever, but, but it's very, very rarely that, that you get a sense of, how much variability is in there and and just also from a you know belief point of view you you know you could ask 10 different uh, experienced project managers and ask for okay how many patients will you recruit per site per year yeah and you will probably get 10 different answers but what is then only taken is the average <laughs> Or the one that is a, has the most seniority or whatever, but but, <laughs> and I, and I think there's there's partly here a sort of a sense that if I try and tell the whole story and all the uncertainty, it gets too complex to to deal with. But actually, again, that's where statisticians can mm-hmm. really be helpful because you know your job, our jobs, when I used to do it, it's about making sense of uncertainty. It's about making sense of variability, and it's about pointing out that. Uncertainty comes with certain patterns, you know, and, and, and it behaves, you know, when there is uncertainty, it's, it's actually quite predictable what the uncertainty will look like in many settings. And therefore, the ability to put sort of reference ranges, confidence bars, however we want to describe it around the plan, it's not, it's not hard to understand once you yeah. see it there. And then particularly if you couple it with, and we're going to make some interventions if it starts to go below this line and or above it indeed, and these are what those interventions might be. And it's it's really helping the wider organization understand how what appears at first sight to be unmanageable complexity actually can be very manageable and can be understood in a very sort of straightforward way. It also helps to avoid lots of unnecessary discussions about taking actions when actually there's just a little bit of random variation happening here. Just because the recruitment line is a little bit below the planned time doesn't mean that there's a real deviation maybe it's well that's true although i would say that's less of a problem in 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 the sense that you know my what i think i've seen more often is teams say yeah we know we're tracking behind but it will pick up <laughs> don't worry i've been here before i know what happens we never hit the plan we always catch up or words to that effect and maybe you know i don't want to say that experience counts for nothing it clearly is very relevant Although I'm bound to say, why didn't we put that into the plan? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, human nature being what it is, we think things will sort themselves out. And too often yeah, and, and that is, I think, the other interesting piece, knowing about all these cognitive biases. Yes, is that we, yeah. that's, for example, nicely described in, in Kahneman's book, Small Thinking, Fast Thinking, where, where there's lots of these, like, like what you just mentioned. Yeah, we, we tend to, overestimate what we can do in a short period of time and and uh, yeah. that is true for individuals and, and and true for teams so now we talked a little bit about recruitment what other problems would you see yeah well the other uh, i mean you without giving away any of the confidential details you'll immediately understand that this relates to experiences i had in my role and and it was around the other, the other big one for me was around quality. So the quality of the data coming back from the sites, the quality of the study conduct. And for an operations organization, we live or die by the quality of the data we deliver. It's, you know, it's not great to come in late, but it's absolutely impermissible to come in with poor quality study mm-hmm. conduct so that, you know, when the, uh, inspectors go visit the site, they don't have confidence in the data that's been ultimately delivered. And, you know, we have a range in, in, in the operational space. We have a range of tools which um, have been used. But, I mean, historically, we've relied enormously on a, a large army of, of clinical research associates, uh, so-called study monitors, um, who go to the investigator sites to watch over what the investigator staff and site staff are doing and, and check and train, indeed, 
those staff in the protocol. <clears throat> and they do a terrific job by and large, I must say. Um, but what we still see is that quality issues do arise. And, you know, to some extent, you know, some of that is is just part of what we understand. You know, it's a bit like the noise in the, a poor site from time to time. And if it's one site in 500, probably it doesn't seriously challenge our understanding of the data and our, our, our sense of belief in the integrity of the study. But clearly, you know, there's going to come a point where the amount of poor data or the amount of questions around quality of the conduct of the study becomes problematic. Um, and, you know, you then say, well, so how do we know? We, we have some very good monitors. We have some who are less experienced. So, so monitor, making sure the monitors know what they're doing is kind of rather obvious. Let's go back to, to the point about the monitors. So, so yes, the Having good monitors is is for sure important, but but where does the statisticians come come into play? Yeah, that's, so that's that's where I was sort of getting to. That um, data itself tells us a lot. The the information that we're gathering around the sites as the study is underway should tell us a lot. So, for example, um, one can imagine that by looking at enrollment patterns we can infer whether sites need more intensive uh, monitoring or less intensive monitoring by you know if a site hasn't recruited patients for quite a long time you're bound to ask why and you might want to go visit on the other hand if they've recruited 50 patients in a short period you might worry that the site will be overwhelmed by all of the activities associated with that. There are tools that have been, that are available for us and many organizations in line with the regulatory agency expectations have moved to what's called a risk-based approach. So by looking at the data and you can pre-specify, these are, these are the, the, the things that would cause us to want to take a closer look. You can specify criteria in advance. Yeah, I mentioned one, but there are, let's say, there, and then you can start to build decision rules around those. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I talked with uh, Tim Rolf uh, from GSK about risk-based monitoring in, in an earlier episode. Sorry, I didn't hear you there. I actually talked with uh, Tim Rolf in an earlier episode about risk-based monitoring. And, there you go. Yeah. yeah. So clearly there is some stuff out there. Um, and, and this is advancing all the time and we're moving into a world of centralized monitoring now. And there is, again, some nice tools, but there are limitations to what it can do. Those limitations, you know, are around short duration studies. They're around smaller studies. And, and you might say, well, we, we need those tools less there. I guess, I guess the central point I wanted to come to nonetheless was despite these tools, despite the fact that they are available, we still see quality issues. And, and I had a, a situation uh, not so very long ago, very large, big investment, very large study, some very significant issues. And now, you know, the analysis of quite how those arose is still, I think, a subject of some debate. But there's that combination, again, of data, interpretation, decision making, acting. And it seems to me that the, the availability of tools, statistical in nature, has helped, but it hasn't solved the problem. And I'm left with sort of two questions, really. One, do we need some more statistical insight to develop those tools further, to make them more generally applicable, to make them more um, easily understood, to make sure that we're making better choices more often? And then secondly, in the interpretation of the data those, those tools are using, are we acting on it in the right way? And again, this sense of intervention and decision-making and the sort of statistical thinking that helps us understand what we're being told by these tools um, could be really powerful. So, you know, I, this is an example of an area which is incredibly important for our industry. High-quality trials, as I've said, are absolutely the foundation of what we do. Um, there are tools, but they haven't solved the problem, is really what I'm saying. Okay. And it seems to me there's more opportunity for more statistical intervention, more statistical guidance to develop the tools and then to use them appropriately. So, so it's not necessarily that the statisticians need to be at the table when these tools are used, but they need to look at the tools, improve them, and train the users better on using them, yeah? It might, it might be both, um, but for sure, um, you know, so long as quality issues persist, I think there is going to be a need for help from the statisticians 
and and for sure you know the the delivery of these tools the availability of these tools has not fixed the problem so you know we have to ask well what's the missing piece here and i and i think one of the missing is really thoughtful statistical input both into the further development of the tools but also into the interrogation of what the tool is telling us mm -hmm. okay what would it require for a statistician to be bad acting in that area? Well, one thing we need to do is take notice of it. <laughs> Talk to your clinical operations partner in the studies. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I can remember when I joined the industry, um, I knew nothing about clinical operations. And even when I stopped being a statistician, I knew almost nothing about clinical operations. I think it's one of those areas that... that Many statisticians, it's just not visible to them. They are focused on their patch. And, and it's actually, it's something which is quite true of the industry as a whole. We've become hyper-specialist. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we know the piece that we're accountable for incredibly well, incredibly deeply. I wonder how many of us take a moment to step back and look more broadly across, you know, everything that goes on in clinical development, less still what goes on in research and discovery and all the rest of it. Now, I understand why, because we're all incredibly busy and, and what we've been asked to do is, is challenging and time-consuming and, and so on. But I do think functional groups, um, I hope what they're doing, and I would encourage them to do it more, is to look around and say there are opportunities elsewhere beyond reporting the primary and secondary efficacy outcomes of a clinical study. Yeah, yeah. And it's sometimes it's actually quite easy. You could just have, you know, a regular lunch with different people from different departments and just yeah. ask them, you know, what's on your mind? What's what's your biggest problem? What keeps you up at night? Yeah, so, so uh, and these type of questions and learn through that approach much more about the bigger business and, and how you fit in and by that understand where maybe much bigger problems than you can help with rather than kind of maybe improving the footnotes in your tables yeah yeah i, I agree with you and, and i think there's a particular responsibility for managers or statisticians to, to do exactly that is to have a broader sort of listening ear and a broader kind of overview of what's going on in their business i mean just just not clinical operations but the thing i did previous to that you know i spent a little bit of time and i i would never claim myself to be expert but i spent a little bit of time getting to understand uh, clinical pharmacology and through some really helpful clinical pharmacologists who taught me a little bit You learn about some of the methods they're using, okay, PKPD models, but how does model-informed drug development come to life? And the FDA is now talking about this in, in sort of very clear terms. You know, my previous company, we were doing this many years ago, and the interface between statistics and clinical pharmacology should be a really dynamic one because there are many crossover problems. Yeah. You know, we're, we're both dealing with data. It should be an integrated partnership because many of the problems need both disciplines to solve them. And I, I'm really delighted that model-informed drug development is something which is beginning to take hold. But for me, it's absolutely about that interface and exemplifies perfectly what you were just saying, which is, you know, have you sat down with lunch with your nearest clinical pharmacologist to understand a little bit about what they're doing? Yep. In our leadership program, we had one student that, you know, triggered on the on such discussions went to a safety physician he was working with and he, where he was regularly sending uh, listings to and uh, asked him what do you do with these listings and he said well basically i look at them for a day all parking what's happening and then i make it you know decision whether we increase the dose or not so you're looking into these long long Excel spreadsheets with all the different values. And within two hours, he programmed a nice, you know, visualization tool uh, that he gave to the physician. And it's a physician was super happy because he could now do his job instead of a, a, in a day in 15 minutes. So, so, yeah. but I think it requires this stepping out of your, let's say, comfort zone, sitting down with others, asking what are their problems. Getting more overall business acumen, yeah. No, I, I think it's a, it's a nice example you give, and I've seen exactly that myself. There's a sort of not quite as bad but sort of related problem, which is because we live in these silos and too many companies, we're, we're quite siloed in the way that we do things. You find multiple reinvention of the same solution or a similar solution mm -hmm. to a very closely related problem. 
And, and although you might say, well, that's a lesser problem because, okay, let's say someone in safety had generated a visual tool to look at these, to replace looking at long Excel spreadsheets and listings. It sort of solves the problem, but it goes no way to addressing the lack of efficiency. And, and so, you know, this is where I think, um, you know, it's sort of layers of problem and layers of concern, but, you know, it's, it's almost a design problem with the way many of our companies are constructed that we're going to have pockets of expertise. And if only they knew what the problems of the wider business were, we'd solve them in a heartbeat. And it's just not happening. And statisticians, it turns out, can solve many of the problems that are really instrumental for us. Yeah, yeah. So so we talked now about a couple of problems, actually, at the, at the board. We also talked about some furthers. But, but there's one important question that we also had at the board discussed. And, and you just mentioned that, you know, all of us are so busy and we have, you know, much more on our plates that we can get to. And so there was a question about, you know, as a stats organization, how we can make time to address these problems. It's, it's not easy. But if you step back, I mean, I don't know how many statisticians there are in your organization. Tell me what. Ten, a hundred, yep. several hundred. Yep. No, no, less than a hundred. Oh. Much, much smaller than GSK. <laughs> but smaller than a hundred. Okay. But in any, you know, organization, you will have a nearly most organizations, you will have a reasonable number of, of statisticians. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so in in my company, there are many. I think you have to ask yourself, what's the priority of the function? What's it there to do? Now, of course, you know, if you work in a CRO, the priorities are different than if you work in a pharma company, and I I totally understand that. And so. The ability to make choices is to some extent constrained by the environment that you operate in. If you're a team of one, you know, your freedom to operate is much less than if you're a team of a hundred or a team of 200. I totally get that. But if I work on the basis that, you know, many of the statisticians in PSI work for at least medium sized organizations, if not very large ones, and they are part of a body of a good number of statisticians and indeed related disciplines, programmers and so on. Is it really impossible to carve out a small number or a small percentage of the FTE effort within that organization to ask these questions in a very deliberate way? I, I, I don't think so. I don't think it's an unreasonable ask. We've just got to be determined to do it. You, you, if there's a will to do it, a way will be found, in my view. And I think if, there's, if it's not happening, and uh, putting aside the very small enterprises for where there really is no opportunity, But if it's not happening, I, I do ask myself, is that because there's really no will in reality yeah. to tackle some of these broader problems? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it, it's not easy. I Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's easy. But if you want to do it enough, you'll find a way. And and see, I would even challenge people on an individual perspective. So, so even if you have, you know, a never-ending to-do list, I think that is will never go away. You know, you could work 24 <laughs> hours and you'll not... not get to the end of your to-do list. <laughs> and in the end, isn't it just about priority? Exactly. You know, how do you prioritize what you've got to do? We've all got more than we can do. We make choices. Yeah. And I think this is where we come back to managers again. You know, in the end, you know, the managers make choices that impact all the people they report, who report to them. So they are sort of multiplicative in the impact they have on the organization around them. So it really comes down to manager choices. How are they using the resources at their disposal? What's important enough to allocate time to? Yeah. And you can always, you know, have a discussion about with your manager and say, here I have had such a discussion with, with my clinical operations person, and I would really like to spend two days working on that and, and see where we get to. And, you know, maybe delay the review of these draft TFLs by two days um and and later work on it maybe and is, and manager and does, will and say yes this, yeah and doesn't this doesn't this take us back to some extent to where you began which is this whole issue of you know the zeitgeist at the moment is digital data analytics everyone's talking about it every chief executive worth their salt is saying are we investing enough are we doing enough have we got enough data scientists you know if the statisticians could grab some of that airtime some of that 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 conversation there's probably never been a better time to argue for the powerful impact that the sort of thinking you bring to bear can have on the organization around you yeah yeah completely agree and if you can then deliver on something and set an example 
it's I think the next step is also then to speak about it. Leverage basically your your business partners that they also highlight your role in, in solving these problems so that the more senior people in the organization can see, okay, statisticians are not just clinical data processors, but they are critical thinkers and analytical thinkers and can bring these skills beyond clinical study work and, and these kind of things. So, yeah. uh, but I think it's, you know, it takes a step to have a broader business understanding, like we talked about. It takes a step to speak up, to go out and ask, to listen, to really understand all the different uh, problems, um, but then also to sell your achievements. Yeah. Uh, and when when we spoke a little earlier, I said, "Look, I'm going to park the technical issue. I'm going to take it as a given." And and I, I, I hesitate to say anything about technical statistics these days because I'm a little rusty. But I've seen what statisticians do, and I regularly today see what statisticians are doing in my organisation. And what's really striking is that some of the things they're doing are quite different from the things that I was doing when I was a, a junior or middle. Uh, seniority statistician. There have been technical advances. Now, I won't tell you what they are. You'll know better than me, Alexander, but but there have been technical advances in the pharma industry in what's acceptable to regulators, but more broadly in terms of understanding how different statistical approaches, many of them Bayesian, how those can bring really useful insights. And in the area that we're talking about today, which is, you know, how can statistics statisticians and statistics have impact and influence across the wider organization, helping other functions do their jobs more effectively. It's not the old stuff that's going to really make a difference in my view. Some of it will, but I think, you know, good new statisticians who understand the way the industry is going, the way the, the new methods, the new approaches, um, the new tools, um, these really have to be embraced in order to facilitate the kind of impacts that we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really, really nice summary to, to sum up our discussion. <laughs> uh, thanks so much, Steve, for the time. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And it was a pleasure to hear you at the uh, PSI Strategy Day. And well, thank you, Alexander, for the invitation. I've, um, I've very much enjoyed our conversation today. And um, uh, yeah, I hope the listeners do too. Okay. Thanks so much. All the best. Bye-bye. show was created in association with PSI and thanks to Rain who helps so much with the show in the background. I think I would be really worried if I don't have her. Thank you for listening and just go to effectivestatistician.com to find the show notes and learn more about other episodes that will help you to boost your career as a statistician in the health sector. And also if you enjoyed the show please tell your colleagues about it just share a link, like it on uh, LinkedIn or whatever social media platform you are and just, you know, tell your colleagues about it. Some people have actually posted that in internal social media or on internal news channels. That would be awesome if you could do that. So, reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.